Hi, and welcome to Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Kristen. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Cameron. So today, it's just going to be us, your Lit Service crew, and we want to talk about something that is a struggle for many writers, including myself. We just kind of want to talk about writing habits and how to develop them and what ours are and what's a good habit and what's a bad habit, because I feel like writers fall on a broad spectrum of like, I have to write every day and people who are really good at that. And then some people who are just like, I'm going to write when I feel like it, when inspiration strikes. And I think there's probably a happy medium. And so I guess just to start, what are our writing habits currently? Caitlin Cameron? I think for me, I have really specific goals set. I have specific projects I'm working on and the days that I work on them. Sometimes even the hours of the days that I work on them, they're portioned out. And, And that's just because of where I am in my career. I have deadlines to meet. And so I have to be that organized. But there are a lot of right answers to what positive writing habits are. For me, I do have to write every day. And I've been like that since forever. I feel like it's maybe compulsive almost. It's my break from everything else. And so it it might not just be because of the writing. When I have writer's block, I write through it. When I'm not sure about plots, I write through it. I just keep going until I find the thing and then end up deleting a bunch of stuff, which works for me. Some people can't handle that. You're an endurance writer. I'm an endurance <laughs> writer. So I also, I set appointments for myself. I have working hours I can't look at social media. I don't answer my phone. It's like being at an office with the door closed. I just, I treat it like a job. I am a slightly different stage in life where I wish I could, I I don't know, I wish that I was getting paid for my writing at this point so I could feel like I was justified in setting aside that much time because I'm a full-time student. I have two jobs. I have an internship. And so while I try and write every day, it doesn't always happen. And that's, Something I have to deal with. It really stinks. So I think what I do is I try and dedicate as much time as possible to writing. Like I will set aside a particular time during a day. So like usually right before I'm about to go to bed, I'm like, wait, have I written today? And if I haven't, I go ahead and I try and type as much as I can. As far as writer's block goes, I think writing through it is a really good response. Sometimes what I do, though, is I ignore the problem for a little bit. Like, I never ignore it for more than a week, because if I ignore it for more than a week, I give up on the project. I know myself, and that's just not good. And so I, I'll, like, read a book or write a different part of the story that I'm excited about getting to or plan something else that I want to happen within that project. And by the time I get back to thinking about it, I've almost always come up with a solution. During the summer, I do write every day. When I have the time, I do it. And I can marathon word count. But I think just finding spare time, like if, if you have a commute, at, what is that word? A commute? commute. <laughs> a commute. You can tell do you have a commute? And read I Because yeah. you read it first and then you don't know how to pronounce it. And I get it mixed up. Yeah. I just. Pronouncing stuff is hard. My favorite one is Latrin. I thought it was Latrin. For the Did you really? Time. Instead of Latrine, my husband still makes fun of me. Sorry. I thought ahead. it was Yosemite. There you go. <laughs> and I said it out loud and my dad went, what? But granted, I figured that out when I was in like seventh grade, but still it was a big relevation. Re- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about relevation. Uh, that's from The Good Dinosaur, which is a terrible movie, but that's like the best part of the whole thing. Is he's like, relevation. Relevation is like a real, well, not relevation. Releve is a term in ballet too. So it's a real thing. Okay. See, I'm not crazy. I'm just really tired. Yeah. Okay, Cameron, how about you? What is your consistency? 
For me, it's really important that I get writing done, at least like my personal projects done as early in the day as I can. So like I can go to, I, like I go to class first, but then it's really important that I actually get the writing done first before I work on homework or reading or anything else. Priorities because, straight. Uh, <laughs> priorities straight. Well, well, not just priorities straight. Well, because my problem is that if I do homework first, I'll get the homework done and feel accomplished. And then say, well, I'm done for today because I got my homework done. So it's really... <laughs> so it's so you procrastinate really... the stuff that's actually due to do the stuff that you want to do. Yes, if I follow that. The point being that I mostly write for the sense of fulfillment right now because I'm not making money like Caitlin is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like how that's our measure here. It's okay well, not to make money writing. No, no, no. no. Well, I, well, right. Cause I write mostly for the sense of satisfaction getting it done. I do homework mostly because it's due, but it also gives a sense of satisfaction. I don't do homework just for the satisfaction, though. Mm. I'm not quite that nerdy, but <laughs> says, 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 says the I man. Hey, I feel called out. Says, hang on. Says the, I was going to say, says the man sitting in a recording booth talking about writing advice. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that one thing that I just want to put out there is if you are trying to establish good writing habits for the Every first time. it's really important. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, I mean, it, that's not necessarily true. Some people, it it makes them feel overworked and like it's a job instead of like something they want to do. And sometimes that doesn't work for people. But I think that the important thing is establishing habits and then keeping yourself accountable to them. If it's not every day, like even if you don't have time every day, don't feel bad about that. And also feel okay about taking time for it. Writing is a legit hobby. And so it's okay to take time. Just like um, Brandon Sanderson says, it's okay to go play basketball with your friends. Why isn't Mm -hmm. it okay to go sit in the library by yourself? (laughs) Hey, no, I agree. I agree 100%. Yeah. I think you should agree there's something to be said for knowing what you want out of your writing. So if, mm-hmm. if you want to write professionally, then you need, you don't necessarily need to be able to write as if it was an eight to five job. I know, like, when I did my. Oh, um, I still can't even do that. No, there's well, no. When, way. when I did my content strategy uh, internship, when I was basically, not, it wasn't seven days a week, but there were days I was writing for eight hours straight. And that was immensely helpful for me. Because it built into me this idea that, no, I can, it took some building up to, but yeah, mm-hmm. I can write. Not, not for eight hours straight, you know, lunch hour in the middle, right? <laughs> sure. Some fun. But then, but other than that, you know, you're writing for, for seven or eight hours a day and discovering whether or not you can do that can be very helpful because if you can do that, then you can use that to your advantage. If not, then, you know, if you still want to do it professionally, then you probably need to find a way to channel that. I mean, I don't even know. What is it going to be? Your weekend 10,000 word burst or something, but. Well, and honestly, you don't need to write a book in six months. Like no. if it right. take five years to write a book, that's fine. As long as the book is written. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even if it doesn't, I mean... Got loads of half books written around that <laughs> they all at, count. <laughs> every time I read them, I get, I'll, I'll like reread them. I'll get to the end and be like, "Wow, that's awesome! Where's the rest?" I'm like, "Wait, I'm the idiot that who didn't write the rest." Like, <laughs> Kristen does not feel bad about really loving her own writing. This is good. <laughs> that's a good problem to have. Actually, a lot of people go back over their old projects and are like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe I did this." But going back to what Cameron was saying, I feel like it's really important to not feel bad about yourself if you can't sit down like even for an hour at first you have to build up it's just mm-hmm. like building some other kind of muscle you have if, if to you're, if you're trying to learn how to run you don't yeah. go you're not going to say i'm going to run for two hours every day for two weeks straight unless if you've you're, never done that before it's unless not... you're stupid and your name is Kristen and you joined cross country <laughs> in okay, the third grade to the rule but no you're right it you was probably a... died for the first two weeks i did yeah. i did and actually i i feel like i've mentioned this before but for me, the habit of running compares a lot to the habit of writing. Just because 
I was a terrible runner. I hated running. And I was like, you know what? I want to challenge myself. So I'm going to join the cross country team and see if I can love running by the end. And <laughs> I was right. Like at the end, I did love running. But the really important thing was that I had people who were kind of setting a pace for me and that like I felt accountable. Like if I didn't show up, people would know I wasn't there because it would have been really easy to quit. And I feel like with writing for me, it's been the same thing where like it'd be so easy to stop writing and like let myself get swamped by life. But we have a writing group where I'm accountable or even before that in high school, I was posting stuff online and people wanted the rest. And so it was like, okay, well, this is something that I'm accountable for. And for me, it lends legitimacy to what I'm doing. And that's how I motivate myself. And that's not going to work for everyone. But for me, it's really nice to have people who are just making sure that I'm doing it. Like even like, I don't think you guys would care if I stopped writing, but like at the same time, your current work in progress is pretty good. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I want to know what happens. Yeah. I I mean, I do too. (laughs) What I was going to say is like, they definitely second the the external motivation. I know it's definitely much easier for me to have written like for seven hours a day with a supervisor who's constantly breathing down my neck. The motivation definitely (laughs) helps. But I think in addition to that, that you're, your ability should inform your goals, but also that your goals should inform the ability that you're attempting to achieve, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're just doing it as a hobby, well, then it's fine to just write, you know, when you, know, when you want to do something to enjoy. If you want, you know, to be completely professional about it, then you want that goal should inform how much you're getting done. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to have goals in writing if you are planning to take mm-hmm. it seriously, like a business. Like if you have career aspirations that are like, I want an agent, that means you have to set little goals that will get you up there. First, you have to finish a manuscript. Even you have to finish a first scene, even you have to finish your outline. And then after that, you have to let other people critique it. And then you have to learn how to take feedback. I mean, it's a process and it's okay to take it slowly, but setting goals, I feel like is really important if you're taking something seriously and, and change in any aspect of life is really hard because it means you have to like physically and sometimes painfully do something differently. And if you want to change, you have to go about it in a purposeful way that it won't happen. You know, start with small goals. Yeah. Listen to a great podcast like Lit Service every day. Yeah. Well, we'll have to do more episodes if you want to listen to it no, every day. No, just, just, just the same one. No, over yeah, over and over again. <laughs> so how do critique partners and writing groups figure into all of this? So that's and what that revision. For. I was wondering. CP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <Clean> paper. <laughs> I feel Close like we've already kind of talked pizza. about this. Little... Cheese pizza. That's what that's Cheese what pizza. That Close makes pizza. this so much more interesting. You know, cheese pizza can be an excellent aid to writing because you were talking about like little rewards for accomplishing yourself. Cheese pizza. Maybe not at the same up. time, but maybe after. Then your keyboard gets all greasy. and I just don't know how that would work because I can't type with only one hand. You eat it with a fork like a barbarian. <laughs> You can like do your read aloud while you're chewing because you're like doing mm, it on hard mode. That's true. That would make everything really exciting. It would be like an extra voice. <laughs> like muffled voice. I'm like, this is better when everybody's mouth is full. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I also feel like it's really important part of growth as a writer to learn how to take feedback. We've already done a whole podcast about this. But just to reiterate... I I love our writing group because it allows me to take my writing and put it into these little manageable chunks of 3,000 words and polish. And, like, polishing an entire manuscript is really daunting to me. Like, I 
You know how people always talk about the, I finished a book part. I don't get there until I've already gone through and done like a continuity edit and all this other stuff. When mm-hmm. I get to the end of my book, I'm like, this is so scary because I don't know how to fix all of this stuff that's wrong. And it just feels like a huge task. And so having a consistent writing group helps me to break it up into a way that's manageable. I think I stole yours. I think you did. You're allowed to steal my thoughts. <laughs> We're allowed to think the same. Yeah. Just like maybe throwing in the additional thought that about revising that it really is okay if a lot of it feels like garbage. Even New York Times bestselling authors, we have this on very good authority. They, 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 even they write things. They're like, what was that? Okay? <laughs> so, so it's very important that, especially if you're in a random group, that say you have a week where you can kind of tell everyone's just being polite. But <laughs> they hate it. It's okay. <laughs> well, and. I, sorry, we're having Brandon Sanderson week. I remember him talking about this in class where he said one of his writing group members bought one of his polished, like finished books, hard copy. Like, oh, I forgot you were good. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were a good writer. I mean, I think you have to give yourself room to, to take feedback and realize that it's not going to be perfect the first time around. I mean, you guys are talking about a lot of negative aspects and being okay with being negative, but I also want to throw out that I'm the sort of person that, like this last manuscript that I finished, I got excited when I finished the first draft. And then when I went through the first round of editing, I was like, I'm so excited. I finished. And then when I went through second editing, I was like, I am so excited. I finished. <laughs> and I'm sure my sister got really tired of hearing me say I was done with the book, but like, <laughs> <laughs> I get to celebrate again. Yeah, exactly. Like for me, writing can, for everyone, writing can be really daunting. And I have to reward myself sometimes because otherwise I just feel like I haven't accomplished anything. Mm-hmm. And so. Like if I get to a scene that I'm really excited about writing, I'll be like, five minute break or let's go get a cookie or like a handful of chocolate chips, you know, like small rewards really, I sound like I'm training myself like Pavlov's dog or something, (laughs) but like, if it works, yeah, if it does, I'm all about positive Mm -hmm. (laughs) self-talk, even if it's not warranted. (laughs) I do want to say like, it is awesome to have rewards and to have like a structure and to have a, a way that you go about writing, but don't get too precious about your writing rituals because otherwise oh, that's true. That's... you'll get anytime There's a wrench gets thrown, then mm-hmm. yeah, you won't be you able can't to write. Do anything. So make sure that you shake things up a little bit. That's I had a thing going over the summer where I would run and then I would write. And I just remember there was a couple of days where for some reason I couldn't run and it just like ruined my entire day. I had zeroed in so hard on this schedule and that's how I was doing it. And it was like, oh, I can't write now because I didn't run. So there was something I want to say about revising, and I don't know if this, maybe this helps with if you if you have a CP full critique of your entire manuscript, or if you have an agent give you feedback. I've never heard this term before. Oh, I'm just, you need to you go just got to spend time writers. on Twitter. Yeah. Oh, that's um, why. Twitter. I don't get on the twitching. <laughs> social media. Revising. So I wanted to just touch on triage editing, which is if you get a lot of feedback that is about your entire manuscript and how to handle it, because that can be really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And triage editing, which um, Kristen informs me, comes from Solstein. I, that's a guess. I had to read his book in my editing class, and it was a very old book, and he talked about it, and he's a very famous person, so I assume it came from him, but he could have <laughs> stolen it from someone else. So wherever from you, <laughs> wherever triage editing comes from, we want to give you credit. We did not make it up, and maybe since Kristen's read a book about it, she should be the one who's talking about this. I didn't read a book about it. It was just part of... Uh, It was a chapter in a book. Well, the point is, is that you go through and you organize things based on how important they are and how big the changes are going to be. Kind of like triage medicine. Exactly. You take the most important slash most Most life-threatening issue. The most life-threatening issue first. So like if you have an entire 
plot thread that needs to be taken out, that's probably a big issue or a character or like really big things that are going to take looking at the entire manuscript, take those things first. And then you take the middle things and then you go to line edits. And that has helped me. I'd started doing that before I ever heard of triage editing. Mm -hmm. It just, when I started getting edit letters, usually agents and editors arrange things that way. They give you all the big stuff. And we then are taught to do that. It helps you not to overwhelm people. Mm -hmm. Well, and also helps authors to be organized, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, like, a line edit doesn't do you any good if that line isn't in the final manuscript. Exactly. So it's, it's time saving. Yeah. So line edits should be the last thing that you do because if you do end up changing a whole bunch of stuff, then it's probably irrelevant. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we go developmental editing, substantive editing, and then copy editing. So, like, big picture stuff smaller big picture stuff and then tiny line level stuff. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to throw out there is that at least in my experience, just because you get some feedback that there's something like someone says, there's just something fundamentally wrong with how you're writing this. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to scrap the whole thing. A lot of times you could fix a really big problem by just adding something really small or removing something very small. I had a, I had a thing where I had, I had feedback from, from someone that I really trust. He's like, this, this just doesn't work. You're trying to use Victorian horror tropes on a modern audience. And, we, and they're just not going to buy it. I'm like, but that's like the entire premise of the thing. How do I fix this? <laughs> I suppose the jury's still out about whether or not this actually fixed, but all I did was add a scene where the characters in the book lampshade what's going on, and then they say, but we have to play along, because if he knows we know, he'll kill us. Mm -hmm. And at least for that reader, it completely fixed the problem, and all that it needed was a couple of extra paragraphs instead of that rewriting the book. entire book. Yes. So. so it's really good to look at things that way. But also, if you get feedback like that, I mean, sometimes it's good to take a... Re it's really scary sometimes to be like, I have to do this huge revision. Like, people don't want to go back through their work and really fix things. But sometimes you do have to go sometimes back Sometimes you do have to do it. Like, but you yeah. don't have to immediately abandon ship. You can, like, wait for the water to come up to your ankles. But then you should get off. <laughs> sometimes with things like that, it's good to take a step back and let it rest and then come back mm -hmm. and reread it. Because it's really hard when you're right in the middle of writing something to see problems like well, that. Well, it works mm -hmm. both ways, right? Because when I got that feedback, my immediate reaction was, oh, I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> but I let it sit for a while. You know, all right, do I actually need to abandon ship? Mm -hmm. But then a solution came to me, letting it sit. So sometimes letting it sit is letting good. It, it works. It, it really works. Idea. And sometimes for me, it's it's taking a step back. And then talking about it out loud. Yeah. My husband mm -hmm. is the best. He's like, let's talk about your plot. And really, he's just listening to me talk because he's really <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my roommates useful. and my sister have done the same thing where yeah. I'm like, I have these tools, these resources, and this problem. What do I do? And my sister's like, well, you could. I'm like, oh, I've got it. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes talking out loud or talking with someone else, it's just nice to have someone else there. Even just talking at someone. You could just have a pillow nice. shape, like shaped like a person, and then you could pretend it's them. So we're going to move on to the second part of our podcast, which is where we do critique, a quick summary and reminder. We'll do about two minutes of things that we like and we think are working really well, and then about eight minutes of things that need second looks. So a short summary of this one, it's a teenager who gets caught in the middle of her city during a necromancer's attack, and she's with her sister and is really set on saving her sister's life. Who knows why? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Caitlin clearly has some bad relationships with her no, sister. I'm just... I thought it was just funny kidding. the way you said it. She just seems really invested in saving her sister for something. Oh, she, she's extremely invested because she's a good sister and probably a good human being. Does that better? Yes. Okay. Well, and also it seems like she's her primary caregiver. Like, yes, that's true. Because they're orphans. Yeah. Well, not just kidding. Like, yeah, it's like she refers to like her orphanage. We get the impression. There's, it's, it's a nice humanizing detail. We get that this is someone who's not only concerned about themselves. Yeah, I agree. Something that I really liked that I know Caitlin is going to have a conversation about later, but... 
this submission is written in third person present tense. And it's something that is really odd. It's not something that happens often, but I thought it suited the story really well. It made me think of Unwind, which also has a creepy, fast-paced vibe to it. And I don't know, I think it helps put a sense of immediacy in there, but we can discuss that sure. more later. I really liked the world concept. I yeah. mean, I liked the idea of rich people using glass to build and it being shattered and there being like glass everywhere. So it's dangerous. And at least that's what I got from it. I got that there was like a glass quarter to the city and that all of the glass had broken. And- I really liked, at least I got this implication that the presence of glass was somehow linked to necromancy, mm. um, which I thought was, which I thought was a really great move because as much as I personally like necromancy, <laughs> just having a villain called the necromancer, it doesn't, it doesn't win you any points for originality, but I want to keep reading just because I want to know how the glass fits in. Well, and like the name of the book is shattered city. So I'm assuming that, yeah, yeah I want to know, I want to know what's going on. There's lots of promises yeah. there. This is a smaller thing that I really liked, but there's a scene where, the sister, Carla, is having a panic attack, and I think the way that Lila responds to her says a lot about their relationship and who both they are in a really few amount of words. So, in particular, I think that was well done. Are you talking about when she's worried? Yeah, she's other- checking all the hiding places for yeah. Carla in the orphanage. I really liked the reaction where she says, there's no way that these caregiver people can take care of my sister as well as I can take care of my sister, because that's a very parental that's a very <laughs> real thing i like necromancers it's scary and it's fun and it seems like there might be a personal connection here which makes me excited about it too i thought there was some good quick internal dialogue about the fears of fighting an enemy where dying is not a way out i thought the author did a really good job of illustrating those really quickly at without while also at the same time like not not, not dwelling on it either there's a really good exchange where she's She's thinking about dying and, like, whether or not she'll still be able to feel it or, like, be involved. Mm-hmm. When, yeah, that was a really great thing. Go look for that in the submission. If you go read it online, it's really cool. I liked the opening line. I thought it was captur- captivating. I liked it, too. Do you want to move on to the things I need a second look? Yeah. Okay, so this is a small thing going with the opening line, but opening line says there's only one safe place in the city, and then the next sentence says that there are multiple magic fortified shelters mm-hmm. and that was like an immediate contradiction to me like i assume the shelter are the safe places or maybe they're talking about the southern part of the kingdom is the north so i i just wasn't sure but it was like immediate contradiction is probably not the best way to start something off i think i think in general <laughs> maybe what would have helped that problem is if we had more grounding details yeah about that so if it was like well maybe like we don't know but maybe maybe all of the magic reinforced shelters are in the same place so there's yeah. only one safe place but we don't know because they're only referred to ambiguously as the shelters i think the detail thing in general is something that I wish I had seen more of in this submission. Just, we have a lot of details happening here, but I don't understand how they relate to each other or quite what they mean for us. So, like, there's this scene where a pebble is moving, Mm -hmm. and it's not really said, like, is it just kind of vibrating? Has someone thrown it down the street? Like, why is this such a big deal? So blocking was confusing. My brain immediately leapt into like the kind of, you have the glass of water in the car and the Mm -hmm. gas ripples in as the terrorist comes by. But we we were missing enough grounding details to know exactly why this is significant. Or even how she saw it. She's in this busy... Well, I don't even know if it was a busy market because we don't ever actually see any other people but her until later. She's going Mm -hmm. through this ghost market. Well, because we get... So speaking about grounding details, we get... get, 
there's a sentence about men and women like shoving everything out of their way as they're running. Yeah. But we don't we don't get any details we about when we say men or women, are they like how are they are they are they wearing clothes? I mean we assume <laughs> we assume they're wearing clothes. But the idea is like like there's this general idea we know that there's like large buildings made out of glass, so we get the feeling like, you know, this is at least a little bit technologically advanced or post apocalyptic somewhere in there. Like with the people rushing through, there's an opportunity to drop details that gives us more of a grounding sense about what this looks like and where we are that yeah. we're just missing. I think that even on just like an, a blocking level, I struggled with that. When you have somebody running through a city and and like the action aspect of it, you really need to have the reader grounded enough so that they understand exactly where your character yeah. is and what the threats are and not to have them realize only after the fact, oh, this was supposed to be scary. Because a lot of the time I was only catching up to what was happening after I'd already read it more than once. So like some other, I guess, examples, there's a sentence that says it's impossible to know which type of attack is taking place or where it might hit. And I was just, how many types of attacks do the undead do? Like, what are the different things that can happen? Like, Mm -hmm. and something like that is really easy to solve. You can just like have Lila consider like, prescriptive you don't have to do this i'm just suggesting this is something but easily fixed like for me would be have a sentence where lila's like oh it could be this sort or what if it's that and then just move on and i'd be like oh now i know two types of attack Mm -hmm. it's it's there's a lot there's a lot of what seems like interesting foreshadowing in here but Mm -hmm. we're just we're just missing just we, we need just a little more detail about about what's going on so that we can we can really really see what's going on. I mean, so I, I like I made the jump. It's like like the implication if there's more than one attack. Well, are there like maybe ghosts are going to come through the walls, or maybe there's giant vampire. But I don't know. But the point being is that it felt like I only made that leap because I'm obsessed with this genre. <laughs> <laughs> so going along with blocking and being grounded. And this is what Kristen mentioned before. This is my own personal problem. I really struggle with third present, and so I might not be the best person to critique it based on that. But I feel like because there wasn't a lot of grounding detail, the third person present almost felt like an omniscient narrator. But we also had detail like on the person level, and so I was caught halfway between. And so I didn't feel like we were hovering right behind her and like getting detail based on what she was experiencing. But I also felt like I wasn't getting an overall picture of what was happening. And I think I agree with that. I really like the idea of this story being third person present tense. I just think it really suits the genre, but I I would agree. I think we need to focus more on Lila because even like that opening sentence, that opening paragraph, it, it kind of sounds like a narrator booming Mm -hmm. at you, like a, there was only one safe place in the shattered city, you know, like, like it's something that could happen in a movie. And that's really cool, but you have to commit to it like mm-hmm. one way or the mm-hmm. other. Yeah. So just, I guess what we're saying is choose your POV yeah. and then stick to it. So earlier I mentioned that I really liked the idea that the glass is somehow involved in the necromancy. So kind of, kind of linked into our, our wanting for more detail. I wish that we had that the, the link between the glass and the necromancy was not only like brought up earlier, because it is, it is to me. That's like that's the original point. That's the reason I'm going to read this book, at least so far. Um, but we don't get it till later, and until then, we just kind of have the generic the necromancer villain, mm. which isn't generic because we have this thing with glass going on. So I just wish, I just wish it was earlier, and we and spend a little more time on it. I have a million questions about this cremation thing. Um, I know, isn't that cool? I yeah. like that. I like that. Uh, yeah, I I'm just going to read you the note that I have because <laughs> because I I don't even know if this. I think this is just reader response, but the instant that we talked about it. 
or that I, I got to it in the manuscript, I was like, whoa, what does this mean? Like, do the cremation ash zombies decay at a normal rate? Would they decay at all? How can zombies have time break them down if the ash can be made whole by a necromancer? What does it mean that they don't have their faces? Are they vaguely human-shaped? Like, I just want so many details about... Is it like a swarm of bees? Yeah, like, <laughs> what Like what does it mean? Because I got the, like, image that they're being made into faceless beings and then that made me think of full metal alchemist i think it's really good to iceberg stuff like the glass or or this you don't have to put everything in at once but we need we need, we need more a little bit ice. more is yeah show us the top 10 percent, not the top two percent i think along with what cameron was saying about the necromancer i think the thing that i felt like was the most compelling about the necromancer villain was the potential that there's a personal connection between the main character and the necromancer, Cameron is like, nah. all caps, italics, him. I read it more as a, this guy is such a scourge that everyone in the city hates him individually. Sure. But I guess that's what I'm, I'm trying to say is that I'm not sure not which way clear. it goes. Like at first I was like, ooh, there's like a personal vendetta thing going on here. And then I was like, well, I don't know. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, it could go either way and that would be fine. It would just be cool if it was clear. Yeah. And then I was wondering like, how old is Carla? Like we know that. Lila is closest to 16 because she's going to enlist. But Carla, the sister, we have no idea if she's like 14, 9, 6. I mean, at one point, Lila scoops her up, so I assume she's smaller and is like running, carrying her. But I would like to know what to imagine. All right. Do we have anything else? No, I think that's it. So. Awesome job. It was cool. Yeah. Please remember to check us out on Twitter at at Lit Service or on Facebook and Instagram as at Lit Service Podcast. We've got lots of really cool ways to meet other authors who are querying so you can network and commiserate because querying stinks. We also hope you'll check out our fledgling uh, forum <laughs> where you can chat about your work or find critique partners and writing group members. It's worth noting that because the forum is so empty, if you say anything right now, you're much more likely to actually hear back from us directly. Yeah, it's Just true. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to look at today's submission with all of our notes, it's available on our website at litservice.wixsite.com slash litnation. All our past episodes are available to listen to as well. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a star rating interview on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else that you listen to your podcasts, unless you're listening to them illegally, and I don't know why you're bothering to do that, because they're free. Uh, <laughs> But it will help other people to find our show. Um, and oh, also, we have an announcement. Our special guest next month will be, please drum roll, drum roll, friend. Uh, it's going to be Erin Summerell, who's the author of Ever the Hunted, Ever the Brave. She's got a really cool Instagram feed. She's yeah, she does. Go check literally her out. Snow White in person. So <laughs> it's going to be really exciting. Um, if you'd like a chance to have Erin critique your first chapter, and let's be honest, who wouldn't? Check out our submission guidelines on the website. This has been Lit Service. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.